Welcome to the John Mark Homer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Matthew chapter 16, let's read from the very end of the chapter, verse 28. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down to the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we invite you right now. Would you open our heart and our mind for you to deposit all that you have for each one of us and to transform us here and now. Amen. In the fourth century, when the Roman Empire fell into decline and disarray, a very small group of people that we now call the Desert Fathers and Mothers went out kind of from all over the Roman Empire into the no man's land of North Africa to just sit before God in the quiet and listen in prayer. In time, they started what we now call the monastic movement. And contrary to what a lot of people think or the stereotype, it was not really an attempt, for the most part, to escape from the pain and suffering of a world in chaos. In fact, they had a little saying, we retreat from the world for the world. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, in his book, The Wisdom of the Desert, has this synopsis of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Society was regarded by them as a shipwreck from which each single individual man, and there were women too, had to swim for his life. These were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society, was purely and simply a disaster. And the monastic impulse, if you want to call it that, the kind of drive from the spirit inside, I think, 
all of us to get away from the city, whether for two decades or for 20 minutes, whether to the desert or just to a park down the street, to kind of get away and just sit before God in the quiet and listen, that impulse from you in your heart, from the Spirit of God, I think it's more important to follow than ever before. A lot of very smart people have drawn parallels between the Roman Empire and the fourth, fifth, and sixth century, and America, Today, you have people like Rod Dreyer calling for what he calls the Benedict Option, or Patrick Deneen calling for small communities of practice to live on the margins of society. And I think he actually uses the word shipwreck of society. All sorts of people are calling for a kind of neo-monasticism in our day and age. Now, I don't know if we're living through the decline of Western civilization or just a really hard year. I really hope the latter, but I do know that in a cultural moment of social media and the 24-7 news cycle and alerts on our smartphone from Silicon Valley-based algorithms that play off of our anger and anxiety and just sheer urban noise, and at a time when, as Ronald Rollheiser put it recently, I was on a Zoom call and he was teaching and he said, our nation, in my opinion, has never been this divided since the Civil War. And at a time when our society is more and more secular in the way of Jesus, is more and more at odds with the moral vision of the secular world. The need to retreat from the world for the world is greater than ever. Our city is in desperate need of people who are grounded, who are compassionate, but also wise, who are quick to listen and slow to speak, and who are calm, but at the same time are strong enough to change a culture from a heart of love and not of hate. We become those people not in the noise, but in the quiet, not in the city, but more in the desert. All of this, of course, is based on the life of Jesus himself. All the desert fathers and mothers said that their retreat was an attempt to follow the example of Jesus, who, if you read the four Gospels, and Matthew's a great example, on a regular basis would sneak away to the desert or literally climb to the top of a mountain or just get up really early in the morning to sit with the God that he called Father and listen. But in Matthew 16 and 17, we have a new development. This time, Jesus goes up on a mountain, but not by himself. He takes along three of his best friends and his kind of core apprentices, Peter, James, and John. Now, Matthew does not give us the name of the mountain. That is most likely a deliberate literary technique to nudge you and I, the reader, to discover your own mountain with God. But scholars best guess is that it was Mount Hermon because the last story was set in Caesarea Philippi, which is at the very north of Israel in the shadow of Mount Hermon. Today, it's on the border of Lebanon and Syria, and it's the tallest mountain in the region, just short of 10 thousand feet high. That is no easy climb. And Jesus takes the disciples away from Caesarea Philippi, if you remember that teaching, the kind of pagan bastion of the northern region, away from the noise of the world, up to a mountain to hear God's voice. Let's just work through the text line by line. Again, chapter 16, verse 28. Truly I 
tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that is a bold claim. There are some in Jesus' circle, Peter, James, and John, who will not taste death, meaning will not die, before they see the Son of Man, that's Jesus' kind of euphemism for himself, coming in his kingdom. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? There are all sorts of interpretations down through church history. Some argue Jesus is referring to his resurrection from the dead, others to the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, others to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and a number more. But the most likely interpretation is that Jesus is referring to the very next story, what scholars call the story of the transfiguration. Keep in mind that the chapter breaks that are in your NIV or whatever translation you have, your modern Bible, are not there in the original Greek. They were put there over a thousand years later so that I could stand up, not just me, but somebody like me could stand up and say, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. In the original Greek, Matthew, the biographer, goes straight to the next line, chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, or that can be translated six days later, the phrase there is a link back to Jesus' previous claim in verse 28, that some of you are about to experience the coming of the kingdom. It's also a hyperlink back to Exodus 24, which the apprentices who were kind of good Jewish boys would have all known. It's the story where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and after six days of waiting, has an encounter with God in a cloud. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, i.e. some who are standing here, but not all, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Again, most likely Mount Hermon. There he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is metamorpho in the Greek. It's where we get the word metamorphoise. It can be translated, he was transfigured or he was transformed. Then his face shone like the sun. Here's another nod to Moses, whose face shone like the sun after an encounter with God. This is Jesus in kind of the full glory of his humanity, the one true human being of all history. But there's more. His clothes then became as white as the light. Now this, again, if you're a first century Jewish reader, is a nod to Daniel chapter 7 at the end of what we call the Old Testament and Daniel's prophecy about the Ancient of Days, or God himself, whose clothing was as white as the light. This is Jesus in the full glory of his divinity on display. Matthew goes on, just then there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses, um, symbolic here for the law most likely, and Elijah for the prophets, both defer to Jesus. It's Matthew's way of saying Jesus is even greater than the law and the prophets. He is the one on whom the entire library of scripture and story of Israel itself was all kind of building up to. He is the apex of human history history and God's himself. Now, what exactly is this story? We kind of know what to do with the story about Jesus preaching the gospel or kind of teaching up against religious hypocrisy or injustice or even healing the sick or even casting out a demon. But we are in uncharted waters when we are with a story about Jesus on a mountain where he is transfigured into what the ancients called the God-man. And in all honesty, there I spent hours in the text, and there is 
a fair bit of mystery to the story that is hard to make sense of as a late modern Western kind of person. But most scholars agree that it's a story, the essence of it is where who Jesus actually is, is put on full display. Where what was hidden under the guise of kind of a rabbi from a peasant village called Nazareth is now brought out into the light in the full revelation of God himself. Heavyweight scholar Dale Bruner writes this, what Jesus was within was once made visible without. To show Jesus inside out seems to be a major reason for the transfiguration story to be told at all. Or here's David Garland's commentary. The divine glory that Jesus retained as the Son of God, but was hidden in his incarnation, is now transfigured to the outside world. The theological function of the transfiguration was to demonstrate to the disciples that the seemingly inauspicious history of Jesus always contained the divine dimension as the ontological Son of God. He's a scholar, so give him a little grace. But he goes on to say this. The mountain of transfiguration demands a radical shift in the disciples' worldview. And the same is true for you and I. They cannot remain the same, for such an unthinkable reality had never before been considered, much less occurred. Jesus, as the ontological Son of God in human form, does not fit into the, any of their philosophical or religious or theological categories. So they must change, and the change will affect everything, every thought about reality, activity in their religious behavior, every dream and ambition of their personal lives. And again, the same is true for you and me. If Jesus is a very intelligent teacher, that's one thing. If he's a socio-political kind of messiah or activist, that's another. But if he is all that and more, if he is humanity and divinity in the same place, that changes everything. For Peter, James, and John, for you, for me, for human history, for politics, for our cultural moment we're in right now, it changes everything. Now, after the encounter with Jesus in the Transfiguration, Jesus' apprentices are never the same. Keep reading to the right and through the book of Acts and into the New Testament. But the change, like all human change, is slow and gradual. There are profound moments of breakthrough, but it's not all at once. Next line, verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Notice there's a change in Peter's heart posture. Um, I know it was months ago, but in the story right before this one, at the end of Matthew chapter 16, remember what Peter said, never Lord, or basically said to Jesus, no, and it's where Jesus had that kind of comeback, get behind me, Satan. Now notice the chains, it's whatever you want, Jesus. And I also love that Peter's first impulse is to set up a shelter, or in Greek, the word there is the word for a tent or a tabernacle. It's the word used all through the Old Testament. It's another hyperlink to Exodus and Moses and the tabernacle in the desert. His kind of first impulse is to set up a tabernacle for the presence of God and to stay there as long as possible. But 
While he was still speaking, meaning he was cut off by God, a bright cloud covered them. A bright cloud all through the library of scripture is the glory of God. Glory not meaning like how we think of it in English as fame, but glory in the theological sense of the tangible expression of God's presence and goodness. In a strange way, God's glory or his presence and his goodness were in the cloud first over the top of Mount Sinai and then later over the tabernacle. Now Jesus' apprentices are enveloped in a cloud that has not been seen in Israel since the time of exile to Babylon hundreds of years before. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What every son or daughter, just we have an ache to hear this over our own dad. Here's God the Father. I'm well pleased with my son. And then listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Can you imagine that you're at 10,000 feet, oxygen is thin or whatever, and there's a cloud all around you and a voice from heaven itself? But Jesus came and he touched them, a sign of his warmth and affection. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now keep reading, we're just about done with the text. As they were coming down the mountain, we all have to come down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, hey, don't tell anyone what you have seen. Keep it on the DL for a bit. Until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, you know what is still coming, my death and my resurrection. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, Okay, just pause. That question, at least to us, sounds like it is out of left field, but it is the logical follow-up question for a first century Jew to ask after the story we just read. They just had an experience which they interpreted to be the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus on the top of the mountain. But the last prophecy in what we call the Old Testament in Malachi 3 said that the prophet Elijah, who in the story never died, would come again right before the Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God. Here is the prophecy verbatim. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike strike the land with total destruction. That is the last line in the Bible of Jesus' day. Jews in the first century were literally waiting around for Elijah to appear. To this day, Orthodox Jews at the Passover open the front door and stand to welcome Elijah into the home, just in case. So what is an odd question for us is a very rational question for them. Did we miss, if you're the Messiah, if we're in the kingdom, did we miss Elijah? Jesus goes on to say, basically, yes. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. How often do we miss God's work and activity in human history, in our city, and in our own life and soul? Instead, they have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. What happened to John the Baptist? He was killed for his prophetic act is about to happen to Jesus himself. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. 
Now, this may sound like a weird end to a dramatic story of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God up on a mountain, a kind of technical theology question about an obscure Jewish prophecy, but it's very important. It's Matthew's way of pointing forward from the Mount of Transfiguration to another mountain outside Jerusalem. It's a compare and contrast between the two mountains. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in his glory, but on Mount Calvary, he is revealed in shame. Here, his clothes are white, but at Golgotha, they are stripped off and he is left naked to bleed out in full public humiliation. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, there by two criminals. Here he is covered by a bright cloud, there by darkness. Here Peter says, it's good to be here. Let's set up a booth or whatever. There Peter says, I do not know the man. Here God's voice is loud. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. There God is silent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can only make sense of the mystery of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and of the mystery of life itself and the soul if you hold to the tension between the Mount of Transfiguration and Mount Calvary, between the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, between the glory of the transformation that Jesus one day has for us and for all of the world. Metamorpho, that word, you recognize that if you've been around Bridgetown for a while. It is the word used all through the New Testament for what happens to followers of Jesus as they apprentice under him for a life. Lifetime. They are metamorpho, they are transformed. But there's a tension between that, which is very true and real, and the shame of pain and suffering and political corruption and injustice and oppression and rejection and disease and death itself, the last enemy to be destroyed in the words of Paul. N.T. Wright says it this way, the mountaintop explains the hilltop and vice versa, meaning Transfiguration explains Golgotha and vice versa. Perhaps we only really understand either of them when we see it side by side with the other. Learn to see the glory in the cross. Learn to see the cross in the glory and you will have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of the God who hides in the cloud, the God who is to be known in the strange person of Jesus himself. Now, what does this strange, mysterious story have to do with our life as apprentices of Jesus and a community of people following Jesus and living through COVID-19 and all of the problems and questions we have right now about life in a world gone awry? Well, in a word, everything. For those of you like Peter and James and John in the story who are drawn to Jesus but you're still trying to work out who exactly Jesus is, this story is a moment of truth, a moment to realize, like Peter and James and John, that the gospel claim about Jesus is that he is far more than a teacher, though he was a brilliant human being and luminary. He's far more than even a Messiah, though he was a sociopolitical figure. But he is the ancient of days. He is the creator of all that is good and beautiful and true in a human soul. If you come to believe that, by believe, I mean to put your trust in that as reality and live as if it were true, because it is, 
then it will change everything for you as it did for Peter and so many others. It will unleash a whole new world inside of you and far beyond. And for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, we're there yet, and for many of us it takes years or a lifetime, there is one command for us as apprentices of Jesus in the story, just one, and it's from heaven itself. It's in verse five, listen to him. In my translation, there's an exclamation point. That's not in the original Greek, but it's, it's just emphatic. Listen to him. One scholar I read called verse five, the climax of the story. Dale Bruner said, it is in these terse words that the story reaches its sharpest point. They are what this story is finally about. This story is about getting up to a mountain, so to speak, and listening to Jesus who is more than most of us think. A few thoughts on listening before we end. One, the most basic posture of an apprentice of Jesus is sitting in his presence and listening. You could argue that all of the practices, prayer, fasting, silence and solitude, Sabbath, all of them at some level are just designed with the really the same aim, aim in mind to help you and to help I come to quiet before God and just to listen. And by listening, I don't mean a kind of quick 30 seconds each morning of listening prayer, though that is a great idea. I mean deep listening. A book that we pass around at Bridgetown a lot is Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is a great read for any of you in kind of a creative field or the knowledge economy. And basically he breaks work down into two categories. There's work, which is stuff like, you know, email and admin and a staff meeting you have to go to or whatever. And it's stuff that needs to get done, but doesn't add a lot of value to the world. And then there's deep work, which is kind of three to five hour blocks of time. Your phone is away. There's no distraction in front of you. You're, you're into what the journalist, the Polish journalist, Mihai Cheek sent Mihai called flow, where all of your creative energy is brought to a focal point and where you often even lose track of time. A new point, Newport's basic point is that deep work is a state, but it's also a discipline and a skill that you cultivate over years or even over decades. In the same way, when it comes to prayer, it's like there's listening and then there's deep listening. There's a kind of quick scripture reading in the morning or a podcast on your commute to work or a God hears three things or God anything you want to say to me, all of which is great. But then there's really just sitting before God and waiting on God with an ear to his overtones in your heart by the Spirit, giving time for the chaos of your mind to settle. And it is a state, but it's also a discipline and a skill that we as apprentices of Jesus cultivate over time. On that note, secondly, listening is a form of waiting on God. Deep listening, like deep work, is not quick and easy. It takes a lot of time. As Marva Don put it years ago, intimacy with God cannot be rushed. This is the number one challenge I have as a dad, just as I teach or attempt to teach my wonderful three children to pray, all of whom who love Jesus. But you know, when you're like 11, like an hour of you know contemplative prayer is not really like up your alley. And the number one thing I have to say to them is listen, slow down, like don't hurry, give God time, wait. Listen, I know you love God. You have to wait to receive his love for you because they, like me, grew up in a world that is just now hyper-digital and everything is so fast. 
I'm not surprised that the opening line of the story is after six days, not after six minutes, or even after six hours. I found that there is usually a delay between a prophetic word of Jesus and it's coming to pass. That could be anywhere from six days to six decades. Learning to wait and watch in the in-between is a key skill and really a spiritual discipline for a disciple of Jesus. And there is no shortcut to prayer. Prayer is not a technique to get what we want from God. It's not what Robert Mulholland called symptom management. It is a relationship, first and foremost, where we set time aside, just like we do for all other relationships, to open up to God and to wait. One of the first things that you realize when you begin to take prayer and spiritual formation seriously is that you're not in control. That in the biblical metaphor, he is the shepherd and you and I are the sheep. That he is, in the he is in charge. This goes against all of our Western sensibilities and the secular obsession with technique, which is almost like a, it's almost like superstition for the modern era. This goes against all of it, which is why for us, often when we sit down to pray, it feels weird and it feels awkward, just like it did for Peter. Do you want me to set up a tent? That kind of a thing. Let me do something. But if we stay with prayer long enough and learn to wait on God, we hear his voice. Now, when I say hear his voice, I don't want to set you up for, I don't want to make a false promise here. I don't mean that if you just close your eyes and wait long enough that like the word, the prophetic word of God in, in you know, Helvetica text or whatever will scroll right in front of your prefrontal cortex if you just give it enough time. That's not what I'm saying. Um, there's a whole other type of hearing from God, so to speak. I love to tell that story from the late 90s when the journalist Dan Rather, I think it was on 60 Minutes, interviewed Mother Teresa. And he asked her, you know, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she was quiet for a minute. And she said, I, when I pray to God, I don't say anything. I listen. And he said, okay, well, when you pray, what does God say to you? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And then she said, if you can't understand that, I can't explain it to you. And there's something to that. It's what St. Teresa, hundreds of years ago in Spain, and St. John of the Cross both called silent love, a kind of just sitting and receiving from and giving back to God, silent love of the will. Because I'm a charismatic, I 110% believe that the Holy Spirit has direct access to my mind and imagination and yours and can deposit a word or a phrase or a scripture or an image into our mind's eye. But because I'm also a contemplative or I want to be one, I'm more than happy to just sit in the quiet and direct the inner gaze of my heart onto the Trinity. I believe that listening is at the heart of the Trinity of the heart of God himself as Father and Son and Spirit all listen to and even defer to one another in love. I'm more than happy to look at God looking at me in just silent love. But whether you hear a word per se, which does happen a lot, or you just sit in silent love, either way, listening is a form of waiting on God. Third, listening is a form of yielding. If you can remember all the way back to our last teaching on Matthew in March, 
the last text was Jesus' invitation to, quote, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, or apprentice under me. This call has all sorts of names down through church history. Some call it the cross. Others call it death to self. In the tradition I grew up in, we called it surrender. Um, the French mystics called it detachment. Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuit order called it indifference, or another translation of the Spanish there is freedom. A number of Christian psychologists that I love call it yielding. I really like that language. Whatever you call it, in our last teaching on Matthew 16, we said there's no formula for spiritual formation. But if there was, hypothetical scenario, I think, John Mark's opinion here, it would sound something like turn and yield. Turn in your mind and your heart to face the Trinitarian community of self-giving love and yield over the illusion of control to God in grateful trust. And just do that a lot over a lifetime and let the Spirit of God and the truth of God transform you from the inside out. And listening itself is a form of yielding. In fact, it's lost in the English translation, but in both Hebrew and in Greek here, the word listen, or it's also translated hear, also has the overtone of obey. It's listen as in pay attention to me, but also listen as in do what I say. For example, in the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, is the central prayer of Hebrew spirituality. The line is hear, O Israel, or in Hebrew, Shema Israel. Shema is the verb there to hear. Um, there's your, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Jesus said it's the greatest command in all of Scripture. Hear there, or Shema, means listen and obey. It's like when we, if you're a parent, it's like when you say to your child, listen to me. What you mean is not just pay attention, you mean that, but you also mean, in all honesty, Obey me. This is not a democracy. This is a totalitarian regime, right? At least if you're little. Obey me right now. Or it's when T, my wife, says to me in a fight or a, a passionate conversation or whatever, you are not listening to me. What she means is not you're on your phone, although that does happen once in a while, but not very often, I promise. Um, I wrote a book about it. Uh, but what she means is you're not hearing me and you're not living toward me at an emotional or a volitional way that is fitting to what I just said in our relationship. To listen to Jesus is to turn and to yield. It's to say with Peter, if you wish. Or as Jesus himself later said to God the Father, not what I will, but your will be done. I've been praying what in the contemplative tradition is called the welcoming prayer every single day for the last two months through a time where a lot of us, and in all honesty myself at times, are very scared over the state of the world and the present and the future. And the very end of the welcoming prayer, if you're familiar with it, is, quote, I let go of my desire for security, affection, and control and embrace this moment as it is. So much of prayer is just that. It's just sitting in the quiet and coming to this place of inner emotional release of your will over to God's love. 
I would go so far as to say in your morning quiet time and no pressure if you don't have one, but man, I really pray that you do begin your day, if at all possible, in the quiet with God, some kind of scripture or prayer and some kind of listening, I would really encourage you, do your very best to never go from that spot to pick up your phone or go about your day or head off to the gym or the office. Don't get up until you have come to that place of inner emotional release, of just yielding, listening and yielding over to God. Last, in listening, we face our fear in the light of God's love and come down the mountain to suffer with joy. In the story, the first thing to come to the surface of the apprentice's heart is fear. Often we come to quiet before God in prayer. The first thing to come up in our own heart is all of our fears. Here's just a few of my fears. It's a little vulnerable, but from the last week of prayer, are people mad at me? Am I a bad person? Am I a bad pastor? Does anyone love me for who I actually am? Will our church make it through this season okay? Will I have and my family have and our church have enough to pay the bills? Will my kids grow up to follow Jesus? These are just a few of the anxious thoughts that ravish my peace of mind. Some of them are neurotic, but others are not. Others are grounded in reality and are quasi-legitimate. And this is why so many people avoid quiet at all costs. It's because of fear. But what does God the Father say in the quiet? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And what does the son say? Do not be afraid. I said there was one command in the text, but really that's not very good exegesis. There are two. It's listen, God from God the Father, and then get up and do not be afraid from Jesus. Scholars argue do not fear is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Over and over and over again, Jesus has to say to us, do not fear, meaning do not give in to the spirit of the age and let fear run your life and even your mind. One, because we're all human and we're vulnerable to fear and we're scared a lot of the time, now more than ever. And two, because people without fear, or better said, people who are not under the control of fear are unstoppable. They can go to Jerusalem and die on a cross, an ignominious death in the name of God. They can stand up against the Roman Empire and die in the Colosseum, a brutal, violent death for the gospel of Jesus. They can witness to Jesus all over the world and down through history, no matter the cost to life, limb, reputation, career, family, any of it. People who are that Fearless, who are not scared of what other people think of them, of how much money they make or don't make, of whether they are comfortable or not, of whether they avoid suffering or not, of whether they even live or die. People like that, and I'm not saying I'm one at all, but people like that, like Jesus, like Peter, like the apostles, are unstoppable and change the world. Hence Jesus' next line, get up, or his line there, get up and don't be afraid. Fear holds us down from God's call on our life. This is why the enemy is so hell-bent on the animation of anything from a careless word to a digital algorithm for news alerts, anything that will make you afraid. If he can get you scared, if he can get you and I afraid, he can keep us down. And this is why Jesus is always targeting our fears 
or what Robert Mulholland calls our trust structures, meaning the things that we put our trust in that we feel like and think that we need to live a happy and safe life, all of which are transitory, all of which can be taken away, our career, our health, our beauty, our status, our reputation, our ministry, whatever it is, not bad things, but anything that we put our trust in can and often will be taken away if nothing else by old age and death. And Jesus is always targeting our trust structures and our fears in an attempt to set us free from their control over our life and to live into God's call on our present and our future. And the only thing that can overcome fear is love. In the language of the New Testament, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, and that comes from one place, from heaven, drives out fear. All other love is imperfect, and that's still a good thing, but it's imperfect. Perfect love drives out fear. It's when we sit in the quiet and let God love us and we hear the Father's words over Jesus, over us. This is my son. This is my daughter. In Greek, it's the word agapetas, literally agape, but as kind of a noun. My beloved is a way to translate it. This is my son that I really love so much, my daughter that I really love so much. No matter what, then and only then, when we hear the voice of God saying what he has been saying for thousands of years, you're my beloved. Then and only then are we set free from fear. Because it's then that we realize whatever happens, should the worst come or the best, Either way, I'm loved by the Father. And because of that, I'm okay. In a day and age of cancel culture and online shaming and verbal vitriol, the need to listen to God and let him love us is greater than ever before. Because after we listen and receive the love of God, we then have the grace to go out and do our work, whatever it is, with joy. Jesus' cryptic line at the end there about John the Baptist's rejection and his coming rejection is a way of gearing the apprentices up for their own coming rejection. It's a way of getting them ready to suffer with joy. Now to end, how do we do this? Move from kind of theory to practice, from a story from a first century biography to your morning routine. In all honesty, it's very Simple, the best way I know how to do it, um, not to stereotype, but is just to get up as early as you can in the morning before you need to go about your workout routine or your homeschooling or your day or whatever it is at work. And before you turn on your phone, just sit, if at all possible, in the quiet and just with your scripture open, listen to God. Now, when I say that, I mean, I don't just mean kind of read the Bible and talk to God about your problems. That's great. Do that. I do it every day. I mean, sit there and listen and wait and yield and let your fear come up in your heart and let the love of God drive it out and fill you instead with the joy of his presence and love. Whatever happens in the years to come, I don't know. I don't know what will happen tomorrow, much less next year. The noise of the world is a nonstop assault on the soul. The need to get away, like Peter and James and John in the story, like the desert fathers and mothers in the fourth century, like so many from the way of Jesus down through church history, that need is acute. Follow that impulse in your heart. 
whether you climb Mount Hood this coming week, or somebody recently invited me to climb Mount Everest. And I said, you know, hiking Mount Tabor is about the, the, the top of my limit. Whether you climb the top of a mountain or just walk down to the park with your, without your phone, I invite you to follow Jesus away from the stimuli of the Caesarea Philippi that we live in and just sit in the Father's presence and listen. None of us know how long our kind of year in the desert will last as a church. But if on a regular basis we were to get away and adopt a posture of sitting in God's presence and listening, it could change everything. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. To join The Circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.